0: Jerry Falwell Jr. poses in front of the Playboy magazine with Donald Trump as he's vouching for him to sort of give him the credibility
1: of the evangelical. You just couldn't make that up. From Interfaith Alliance, this is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. Tim Alberta grew up as the son of an evangelical pastor. The insights this background gave him as a political reporter and best-selling author are invaluable, and that comes through in every page of his new book, The Kingdom, The Power and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. This week, we'll examine this movement that while still not well understood, defines a lot of American politics and culture today. As we celebrate the 18th anniversary of the State of Belief, I want to make sure you're subscribed to the next generation of the State of Belief podcast. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You'll hear this episode in full, as well as recent interviews with Rain Wilson, Bishop William Barber, Imam Abdullah Abtepli, Rabbi Sharon Brous, and my exclusive conversation with Rob Reiner and Dan Partland about their essential new documentary film on Christian nationalism, God and country. It would really help us to have you subscribe, rate, and tell the people you're close to about what you're hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how to do that is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest, Tim Alberta is a staff writer for The Atlantic and the author of the new Bestseller: The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. It is a fitting follow-up to his other best-selling book, American Carnage: On the Front Lines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of President Trump. In The Kingdom and the Power and the Glory, Tim Alberta weaves together the expert observations of a skilled journalist with the insights of an American who grew up as a practicing Christian and the son of an evangelical pastor. Tim, I do want to note that this book made the list of Barack Obama's favorite of the year. I'm not sure how much favor that does with the population you're writing about, but it also happens to be true, and I'm very happy to welcome you to the State of Belief.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, I'm not sure either— I, I try to uh, not worry about things I can't control, and that's certainly one of them. Uh, so, uh, you know, for the people who think that I'm a uh, pinko, commie, Marxist, woke uh, guy, then you know that probably doesn't help their opinion of me much. But uh, I- I'm not sure that anything would. So, uh, it's you know, and,
1: I- I- it's a it's a, it's a cool thing that he was reading it, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, I want to ta- start by just saying like this book read uh very much like not just a reportage, but also as a Christian book. I'm a Baptist minister and reading it, it was clear that you were weaving in some of your perspectives on Christianity as someone who was the the son of a pastor and um and ha- have your own beliefs. And it was just, um, it was interesting to read a book like that rather than something that was um, kind of a political reportage. And you start with a very moving uh, conversation about your father and introducing us to him. Do you want to say a little bit about like, what was your platform or vantage point when you started to write this book?
0: Sure. I. You know, it, it's, it's hard to uh, decouple my professional background as a, as a reporter from my personal background as a PK growing up in the evangelical world from my own just faith identity as a as a Christian and uh, you know I, I suppose the book was an attempt to weave those things together um, but that being said, I mean, the, the book itself was never in the cards. As I, as I explained early on, uh, the book was really born out of first the, the, uh, the kind of ugly interactions that I had with, with some folks from my home church, uh, around the time of my father's death and, and his funeral and, and, uh, you know, people basically wanting to pick fights with me about politics while we were trying to bury my dad, which was uh, a very unsettling thing. And then I think the wake up call that delivered and what I was seeing around me elsewhere uh, in the in the sort of months that followed. Uh, and this is, you know, late 2019, early 2020. So we're talking about COVID-19. We're talking about George Floyd. We're talking about Trump's reelection and and January 6th. and. All of that and what I was seeing at the intersection of, you know, partisan politics and evangelical Christianity was just becoming uh, more and more of a uh, sort of bright red blinking light that, that you know, that, that something needed to be done here. And uh, at, the, at the very least, I, I knew that I could contribute something to the conversation uh, around not necessarily... The prescriptive as much, although I try to offer some prescription, but really the diagnosis of, of what has gone so wrong here and and why, why the evangelical movement seems to have lost its way.
1: Well, I, I, it, the book is kind of amazing because you read through it and you're like, it's very much of like a who's who in the evangelical world, not in a bad way. It's not like, you know, here are the bright shiny objects. You actually intersperse like the, the big names with people pastors on the ground, um, in a, in a really wonderful name, but you do get this big picture of specifically the kind of, I, I would say mostly like the white male evangelical world. I mean, those are the primarily the people who you interview. And, um, and it's, it's fascinating to see almost like a consistent narrative of uh, of how they kind of went from one thing to another. I mean, not all of them, but what, what was some of the diagnostic that you discovered as you went out and, and got all of these people to be in conversation with you?
0: I think one of the thematic through lines of the book is understanding the ways in which our faith identities have become wrapped up in almost inextricable from our political identities and and our our kind of cultural social identities and our national identity and and understanding how that has happened and how it's progressed and and you know some of it it has been has happened very subconsciously i think uh In other ways, it's been there's been a conscious, concerted, very well organized, well funded effort to to effectively merge, uh, you know, the the evangelical church with the Republican Party. And, you know, that that understanding the history of that uh, early in the book, I sort of flash all the way back to the 1970s and look at Jerry Falwell Sr. And his really his construction of this machine uh with these cogs of first his church in lynchburg and then the growth of liberty university and then ultimately the moral majority and how he uses this this machine this apparatus to uh begin to not only kind of impose the evangelical movement's will on the republican party but i i think even more so uh to convince more and more Christians at the grassroots level that their their belief system, their fidelity to God is really proven by their commitment to conservative causes and to Republican partisan causes. Yeah. And, you know, obviously the, those seeds that were planted – you know, 50, 60 years ago, we are watching them being harvested now in real time. And, and, uh, and I I mean, it's
1: interesting, one of the interesting moments of the Jerry Falwell story was um, the juxtaposition of him with Jimmy Carter, and his like, really strong rejection of a fellow evangelical, um, but because he was on the wrong side of the ticket. I mean, I, I I thought I found that I I hadn't really read about that before. I thought that was really striking how strong, I mean, I had known that the many evangelicals had rejected, um, Jimmy Carter, but I actually, it was really startling to see like his, his voice against it.
0: I think what, yeah. And what's really, what's really striking is not just that They opposed Carter, but that they sort of turned Carter into a boogeyman, that they that they they held him up to be the enemy, not on any doctrinal grounds, theological grounds, but really just as a partisan uh, litmus test of sorts to say, you know, clearly this Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher he, he's not one of us. And what's I would even go a step further, what, what's so fascinating about that period, and about the kind of uh, the symmetry of the modern times to what was happening 50 or 60 years ago, if a lot of folks don't remember this, but Jimmy Carter had the audacity in 1976, while he was running for president to give an interview to Playboy magazine and in that interview he talked about how he'd struggled with lust among other things and jerry falwell senior he really pounced on that seized on that episode and it became kind of a galvanizing moment for him and for some of his allies where they pointed to it and said look at the civilizational decay you know begotten by this sort of thing. How could this man who wants to be the leader of our country and the leader of the free world and a role model for our children, how could he possibly think it's appropriate to give an interview to Playboy magazine? And and the the amazing... Like the script writers would have would have torn this page out of the script 50 years later, 2016, yeah. 50 years later, Jerry Falwell Jr. poses in front of the Playboy magazine with Donald Trump as he's vouching for him uh, in, to, to 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 sort of give him the credibility
1: of the evangelical. Yeah, you just couldn't make that up. And, and in that case, actually, the, the cover is on the wall framed by Trump as an accomplishment because he's on the cover of Playboy, you know, whereas Jimmy Carter, I mean, you and I, I mean, we come from different traditions within the Christianity, but we've been in prayer moments where confession is part of like, I'm struggling with this temptation. That's actually a very Christian act. To be honest about your temptation and have that be pounced on. it was just a lesson learned, people. Don't be honest as a politician about what you're what you're what's going on in your soul, because you know, it will be used against you. It's like the classic preacher hearing something from a congregant and then preaching about it from the pulpit, which is a very nasty thing to do. That's like kind of kind of what happened there. I mean, one of the through lines here, and I you know, there are these big figures, but One of the through lines of the book is the effect that this kind of transition into very rabid partisan politics, sometimes fueled by conspiracy theories and, and QAnon and all this kind of stuff, the effect it's had on actual congregations and lives. And your father's congregation is a case in point but it's not just the only case in point throughout your book you're talking to pastors who are really struggling and these are conservative pastors who are really struggling because of this thermonuclear charged politics that are happening in the evangelical movement do you want to talk a little bit about that what it felt like to be talking to these pastors in some ways, because you come from a pastor family, you know how hard it already is. Add this to that.
0: You know, one of the things that I think a lot of congregants, no matter the denomination, the faith tradition, they take for granted the fact that you know their their pastors are just guys. You know, they're 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 just they're 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 they're, they're mortal men. They're flesh and blood, and they don't have all the answers. And um, I think even more so in a moment like this one, where there, you know, as you say, the thermonuclear politics just kind of um, that that are ready to detonate inside of, of these churches. You know, these pastors they went to seminary and they studied Hebrew and Greek and systematic theology, and they 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 got a they got their training in scripture. Maybe they got some training in counseling or, or, or some sort of adjacent ministry things. But they didn't <laughs> most of them, they didn't uh get a poli sci degree. They 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 didn't uh participate in a debating society. They weren't equipped, they weren't prepared to enter into this sort of noxious partisan fray and uh kind of um Try to try to negotiate a ceasefire in the middle of a in the middle of a congregation that's like descending into civil war. That's just not how these folks are right. Are, right. are are equipped for ministry. And so that's a big piece of this because as the you know, call it whatever you want, the the Trump era, the, you know, all of the madness around COVID-19, all all of this stuff that has come for the church in recent years, uh, particularly for the conservative white church uh, and the evangelical church, you know, you have these really really divisive polarizing debates uh, happening inside of the church, and you've got these different factions that form you know, one of which wants the pastor to take a particular side on on an issue. Another faction wants the pastor to take the other side on the issue. Another faction, probably the biggest faction in most cases, doesn't want the pastor to to say anything at all. And everybody's kind of watching to see what the pastor's going to do or say or not do or not say. And I, and and somebody's going to wind up being upset no matter what. And you know in in the meantime that pastor is trying to prepare a sermon he's trying to counsel uh, a broken marriage he's trying to take care of his own kids at home and what's happening is you know inevitably you've got some number of people who wind up getting really upset and they wind up leaving and on the way out they're saying things doing things that are kind of sowing further division and you 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 made the point a minute ago and i would just underscore it that these are you know in the reporting i'm doing these are conservative pastors these are these are not you know we're we're not talking about you know i kind of teased earlier saying like oh like i'm a you know a, a marxist commie socialist woke whatever
1: right right, right. you know
0: the, and that of course is the charge from some of the kind of far right factions inside of these congregations where they'll come after their pastor and say you know well this guy he he's not one of us right when in fact in uh, in all of these cases that I'm reporting on these pastors are theologically culturally politically conservative right. but because they don't feel compelled to you know bend the knee to Donald Trump because they have the temerity to talk about the need for racial reconciliation, Um or because they, they because they
1: because they be kept so their the, kept kept the church open because, yeah, because that was right, or, because or, they, or not they, you know you know I mean well, yeah, you know, yeah. or like they, you know they went, during the height of you chose to to obey the state mandate you know I mean you know these kind of things right. just as you're saying yeah I mean it, that it, makes these them, are, that that turns them into the enemy it makes them an apostle yeah yeah and I think what you you know we are it is not a you know some sort of hidden secret that um you know christianity is in decline in america and uh and um and it used to be that evangelicals would like point the finger at the main mainline say ah look at you it's because your theology is bad that you everybody now is like you know go, going off a cliff and so um you know the 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 fact that this kind of turmoil is happening is it's it's just a it, it doesn't help um if if your interest is actually um sharing the gospel or you know somehow inviting more people into the church this certainly is not the way to do it I mean it's you know that that is a, it's a disaster I think one of the things that I've you know, that, that one of the stories that I've been, I hadn't thought about for a while, but your your book, your wonderful book, "The Kingdom, the Power, and the Glory: American Evangelicals in the Age of Extremism," your book brought up the the figure of Al Mohler in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, and he's an example of someone who just changed, flipped, totally went from one perspective around specifically around Trump to another perspective around Trump radical 180 and I'm just wondering like talk about your your experience with Al Moeller and like what that taught you about what's happening
0: well um I would note first that uh Al uh, would not speak with me for the book I had um uh, I had uh, reached out and tried uh, to speak with him but uh just got crickets and uh So I don't spend a ton of time on Al in the book, but I do note this evolution you're describing Uh, in 2016, Al Mohler, who's arguably the most prominent theologian in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention, um, you know, is the head of Southern Seminary, very prominent figure in evangelicalism. Al Mohler was really one of these guys who was at the tip of the anti-Trump spear who just, you know, said never means never like I, I you know, and, and I forget exactly what he said, but it was something to the effect of like, I wouldn't want this guy to be my neighbor, uh, much less my president, right? Like he was just very clear that, you know, hey, when we talked about morality, and integrity and character mattering during the Clinton years, we meant it. And so, you know, he, he was staying consistent to that, which I had a great deal of respect for that position. Um, uh, not because of the partisan implications, not because it was about Trump, but because it was about a standard and that that standard needs to be fixed and consistent. Uh, well, you fast forward to 2020, And then in the aftermath of 2020, I think this is when the biggest change became visible because, you know, and this was where I I would just emphasize this. It wasn't just what happened around the end of Trump's presidency. It wasn't just January 6th or any of that. It was really when Biden took office that you began to see a lot of folks Uh, really begin to shift in their their if if not their positions then at the very least in their rhetoric and with in the case of al moeller it was both where he began as many of these folks in the book uh, that i'm documenting he began to traffic in a lot of this good versus evil talk that like partisan politics was now a proxy for good versus evil that it was no matter no longer a question of red versus blue uh or conservative versus progressive but that really this was this was now a a front in the holy war and that you needed to be on the right side of it and if you weren't on the right side of it as he said in this one particular speech that really rocked a lot of people who know al very well he he said effectively like if you are not voting republican then you're not being faithful to jesus and that was a I don't want to over dramatize it, but it was something of a watershed because that was just for Al Mohler, of all people who had kind of um, who had distinguished himself as being really consistent and credible as it as it pertained to that intersection of, of 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 conservative evangelicalism and conservative politics for him to suddenly go over the falls in that way. It really bothered a lot of people and really unsettled a lot of people who considered him, you know, to be an ally and a friend.
1: Up next, more with Tim Alberta. His new book is The Kingdom, the Power and the Glory. You can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. You can find links to topics we discussed this week, as well as transcripts and more. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Hey there, Curious Minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. My guest is best-selling author Tim Alberta. His latest book is The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. We've seen in recent years, you know, just especially politicians, really delving into spiritual warfare as they, um, you know, kind of drum up support. You you mentioned the instance of... um, uh, DeSantis taking out, uh, the Satan and replacing it with the left. And, uh, and, you know, lots of examples of that right now. And so, you know, the, the recent, um, video with, and God created Trump. I mean, you had, you know, it's interesting. You had, and God created a farmer and then DeSantis says, and God created a fighter. And then it's just, and God created Trump. I mean, it's really like, really like it's, it's, it's shocking. Who's hijacking who? we have we have politics and we have religion and the the, the question is like was Donald Trump the kind of catharsis where all of a sudden we're going to rise up the evangelical base and we're going to use it and we're going to kind of transform it what's the specific role of Donald Trump in this metamorphosis because it's it's different when you know even a even a George Bush where you're you're kind of like okay well you know he's a christian and and you know you can imagine evangelicals christian this this feels totally different in a way what is different about donald trump in this moment you know in presidential politics it's all about
0: timing it it just you you know it's the single i think the single biggest ingredient in in determining who we elect is the question of the when and can they meet that moment right so you know um in the aftermath of george w bush's disastrous presidency and particularly the public sentiment turning so sharply against the wars you know hillary clinton was the the no-brainer the the coronated uh pick of the democratic party until this young state senator comes along and runs against her record on the war and and there's no world in which barack obama gets elected president and, and any other election of the Mm. past 40 years except the timing of that and the stars aligning and the public turning against wall street and the party establishments on both sides and the war and along comes barack obama and he steps into that moment i think similarly when donald trump comes along and i don't just mean comes along in 2016 but i think even if you wind it back a little ways you had all of this resentment and and fear kind of building in the evangelical world for for a long time but i think it's really beginning to crest in the obama years um and, and and i want to be clear on this as i as i try to be in the book i don't think that that fear uh is totally without reason i mean i i think that if you are a baby boomer white evangelical born in the 50s or 60s You are looking around in the, you know, early aughts or certainly in the 2010s, you're looking around and like the country is becoming unrecognizable, right? Demographically, the country is changing uh, overnight. Culturally, the country is nothing like the country you grew up in. I mean, I cite this example often. It's almost it's almost difficult to remember now. But, you know, Obama runs in 08 for president opposed to same sex marriage. And he leaves right. office eight years later, and same-sex marriage is the law of the land. I mean, it's so you have and and none of that is even to get into the economic collapse in 08 and the manufacturing sector being decimated and 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 small towns and the middle class everywhere suddenly, you know, are panicked. So you have all of this ingre all of these ingredients, the political, cultural, economic turmoil and the resentment that that comes of it, and the anger, the fear, the grievance. And so into that environment steps someone like Donald Trump, who is a demagogue and who is uh, and, and who sort of thrives on preying on the insecurities of people. And he is willing to do things, say things that no other Republican politician was willing to do or say to exacerbate those fears and, and to parlay them into his own political success. And so I don't think that Donald Trump uh, I think that sometimes he gets too much credit, or maybe too much blame, depending on the perspective, for like creating this this moment that we are in. I think he took a a bad moment and made it worse by playing to our ugliest instincts, by playing to our the darker angels of our our nature. And mm. obviously, with the evangelical movement, it's 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 particularly vexing for a lot of people looking from the outside in, trying to understand. How could it be that this guy, who's obviously not a Christian and who doesn't share any of their core values, how could he become their champion? But I think that it's actually answered in the Paul Harvey, God made a protector thing. You know, these people are afraid. And in times of fear, dating back to Constantine, at least, Christians have always looked to a strong man, looked to the power of the state, looked to a military Mm. leader. To protect them. And that's that's what Donald Trump is. He's mm. he is their protector.
1: It's, you have an interesting moment where you um, Miroslav Wolf and, and others in the you, you introduce like a, a, in some ways a international perspective into our domestic reality. But you, you do allow it to be recognized that this is actually not unique to America in some ways, that a, a strong man would use religion to undergird their policies, whether or not they are a believer or adherent. And Putin is an obvious example. But I think it's helpful for people to, to recognize that there's a uh, kind of consistency about the way religion can be used for strongly nationalistic, uh, you know, and if you if you understand, like, worshipping a, a nation as idolatry, it's almost like a strongly nationalistic ideology that replaces the religion itself or gets so fused with it, it's almost impossible to differentiate. Were you at that conference with, with those folks in France? And what aha moment was there around the international perspective, looking back across the pond, as you said?
0: It was really eye-opening. Yeah, so I, I I was attending this conference in France a couple of years ago, and th- you know, the the war in Ukraine at that point is raging and uh, intensifying, and there are war crimes being committed, and uh, the the rhetoric from Vladimir Putin and more importantly from Patriarch Kirill, who's the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, has really gone. Uh, way past where it was at the at the beginning of the war um it was not no longer anymore that you're you're fighting for uh the russian motherland no longer even that you're fighting that that we're rooting out nazism in ukraine it was you are fighting evil in ukraine you are fighting satan himself that this is a fight between god and satan and you are on god's side uh and that was that was very much the the uh thematic undercurrent of this conference with with a couple of these gentlemen who, you know, have seen up close uh, in Miroslav's case in his native Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, with the war in the Balkans and the uh, genocide and the ethnic cleansing that ensued. Uh, but then in the case of this other man, Cyril Hoveron is his name. And he was a, a, a Russian Orthodox monk who worked inside of the orthodox church under patriarch Kirill was sort of his right hand man and now he is living Mm. in exile Mm. and they're they were both describing from their own unique experiences and vantage points how the fusing of a a a religious fanaticism and a religious justification with an authoritarian uh, uh, political impulse and, and political agenda creates the environment for a a a disastrous identitarian conflict where you are you believe that you have a sort of um, license from the almighty to not just to fight but to to be a barbarian and to yeah, to I mean, do that which you could never justify otherwise. And yeah, I
1: mean, you. I, I'm going to read, you know, just, I'm going to read your own words to you. But I think you're in some ways you're you're paraphrasing Miroslav Wolf here, where you say there are three features of creeping totalitarianism in the name of religious conviction. The first can be seen when leaders assert the primacy of an ethnic or cultural identity over shared humanity. The second is when they stress the purification of those identities, inevitably leading to a form of ethnic cleansing. The third is when violence becomes legitimized for the protection of group identities. That feels to me like just a very clear progression. One of the things that I do want to talk about is is violence in this. We had a, I had um, Jeff Charlotte come on the show to talk about his book, um, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. And he said in his 20 years of reporting on the religious right, he has never seen so many guns. And in a lot of polling, unfortunately, there is a sense that violence may be necessary. And I just, you know, when you have all of this rhetoric and all of this us versus them, and, and then it becomes like, a, a spiritual war, then and and if the consequences are good versus evil, um almost anything can be legitimized. i mean how how does violence play into what you were hearing? Well, you just put it
0: perfectly and and, and that's why I wrote that chapter from France to just to to take the American experience and put it on hold for a moment and, and step back and understand not just what's happening right now in Ukraine, but what's happened for hundreds of years when you see that fusion of authoritarian political impulses with uh, kind of religious zealotry, religious fanaticism and ultimately religious justification for violence. And it doesn't end well. It's it, it And the idea that it can't happen here is just... I, it's just foolish, because, for one thing, uh, in my reporting, in my travels, you see the appetite for conflict. you You see and hear people talking to you very openly about violence coming and 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 their willingness, their readiness to partake in it. but but even more so, I mean, January sixth was not some outlying event, I don't think. I mean, I, it, listen, um I'm grateful that we have not had a, a a similar at scale flare up of political violence since then, But I think we are probably in for a sustained period of political violence in this country. I, I think uh, the ingredients for it are there. And if you talk to anybody who works in, the uh counterterrorism world they will tell you that this is now their single biggest priority that it that, that 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 all the intel they have suggests that domestic white nationalist violence and much of it uh at least some of it under uh sort of uh informed by uh and rooted in terrible flawed distorted theology that is a real and present danger and and so,
1: and anyone who wants to pretend that it's not is just kidding themselves yeah that's just terrifying one of the you know again back to uh you this being almost a christian book as well as talking about christianity is your reflection on power and uh you you do this really you know you kind of do the it was very much like a sermonic almost in like let's go back to the you know, the the uh, the Greek meaning of the word, but it is it, it is it's really important, I think, to understand how you understand power to understand what you're trying to do with this book. Like what how do you understand the way power is factoring into the calculations of, of the um, of the folks you're talking about in this book? So in all three
0: sections, uh, the kingdom, the power and the glory, it's a book in three parts. It's not just the title uh, for anyone listening who thinks that it might be. So in all three sections of the book, I really try to establish that there is theologically, doctrinally, that there is a kingdom that exists and that is promised to us. And yet we are fighting for this counterfeit kingdom, that there is real power in Christ that is promised to us and we are pursuing this counterfeit power real glory that we have in Jesus, and, and yet we pursue this counterfeit glory. The, what's so fascinating about the earthly pursuit of power is that it always corrupts, but that it also always disappoints. So I I, I, I examine, for instance, the, the uh, 50-year crusade against Roe v. Wade. Now, whatever your own views on the abortion issue... It must be understood that I that that uh, there are millions of really sincere, deeply convicted conservative people for whom abortion is the only issue that really matters politically, and they are they are deeply invested in in seeing abortion law change in this country. And it also must be observed that after fifty years of fighting to overturn Roe v. Wade, they won. And the result of that victory is more abortion in America. And I point that out to say that by pursuing just raw political power and by exercising raw political power, we don't always get the results that we think we're going to get. And part of that is because of the corrupting and compromising nature of that pursuit of power, in other words, when when outsiders who aren't really sure what to make of the pro-life cause and, and who haven't really made up their mind super firmly on abortion and abortion policy and how many weeks and what does this all mean, when they see the pro-life crowd rally around Herschel Walker as a, as their as their standard bearer in the nation's most important Senate race, a man who clearly has paid for abortions, a man who clearly, has done a lot of things in his private life that don't match up with his, the public facing political persona. The message of the pro-life movement is is, I think, uh, drained of its credibility because the messengers are just not believable. And so when you think about the 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 great social causes uh, over the, over the course of history, what you tend to see is that before laws change, before policies change, you see that hearts change and you see that people are persuaded. And when you look at the pro-life movement, yes, you do have lots of people who have really done commendable work, in my view, to to to, to do what needs to be done to help the single mother, to help the orphan child, to to donate time and money and resources and doing the hard work to serve that community and to persuade through their actions. But I think for most others who have been involved in, in pro-life politics, it's been as simple as slapping a bumper sticker on your car, maybe holding up a sign occasionally at some at some march, and, and then voting Republican, and that's enough. But what we see is that that political power that has been attained has ultimately betrayed their cause in many ways because of the corrupting nature of that power. And so that I, I I just isolate that example because to me, having grown up around the pro-life movement, having so many friends and family and people I care about who are so uh, deeply invested in the pro-life movement, I think that they have been misled and that they have been mistaken in pursuing that political power instead of pursuing persuasion and pursuing uh the other mechanisms that as Christians we have and we are taught that the means matter more than the ends and and we have been too focused on the power and the ends rather than on the means. Mm.
1: Well, I think that's right and and we may not agree on that issue but one of the one of the most um pointed to contradictions in this is that you have simultaneously strong anti-abortion laws and and yet strong opposition to many of the policies that would help uh, young women have kids and the kind of surround safety net for raising children in a world where you don't have any money and you don't have any resources. Like there's not a kind of a consistent policy uh, objectives. And so that's another like, you know, for those who are looking, you know, and saying, okay, what do you really want? Do you really care about the babies? (laughs) Or what do you, what do you want? It's not to undercut your point at all. It's to say, like, what is, what are, the, what would be the broader objectives that that might support? But I think power—it is such an interesting—the way you put it is is so strong. Um, in my work, we see a lot of what you describe. We may not agree on all policy things, but we're very um, concerned about the way this translates into a political movement that is trying to exert a kind of power that feels very much like an estab- establishment of a theocracy. And so we we try to get out there and do things to to counteract it. But my question to you is, what are helpful and unhelpful ways to be, if we see this movement as a problem, not just for our body politic, but for our, the religious tradition of evangelicalism in America, what are ways that both people within and without can be helpful? And what are ways that are not so helpful? Sure.
0: So I guess I'd start with the unhelpful, uh, you know, um, j- even just in what I was saying a minute ago about the pro-life movement. Um, and, and I emphasize this early in the book, I think on like the second or third page of the book. We have to understand that when we're talking about, quote unquote, evangelicals or, you know, even white evangelicals, that, you know, this is t- we're talking about tens of millions of people. Right. There is a vast spectrum here. And and, and not everyone who holds to a certain policy standpoint on, on uh, abortion or on any number of other divisive uh, social issues, n- they're not they're not all you know, MAGA extremists who are bloodthirsty and sort of foaming at the mouth, uh, readying for civil war, right? In fact, I would argue that the majority of them are not. Um, I think that we are living in a really strange political moment where a lot of old definitions and old affiliations are being turned upside down. A lot of people are uh, trying to disengage with politics more and more. And that is not easy. I mean, one of the really interesting things that I note in the book is that even when I've talked with the pastors who are the most beaten down, who have gone through hell, who have just been uh, subjected to to like cruel and unusual things inside their congregations, when you ask them like, like, okay, what percentage of it, what percentage of your people have really like just gone off the reservation here? because you're trying to quantify the problem and they'll say to you like, ah, maybe 15%, like 20 tops, right? Like, which, which is, you know, was consistently to me really revealing because what, what you're recognizing is that, you know, in any institution, and my first book was about the Republican party and there are obviously parallels to what happened with the sort of implosion of the Republican party over the last 10 years. What you see is that a really vocal, angry, well-organized minority can run circles around a complacent majority. And, and, and I think that is much of what we see in the church. So I think one of the things we shouldn't do is paint with an overly broad brush. We shouldn't be summarily dismissing and condescending to and patronizing th- this entire population of people. Um, We need to understand that there are a lot of allies out there and they, by the way, they might disagree with you on some really important things, but they do agree with you on recognizing common humanity and on preserving a pluralistic democracy. and, and, And so those are pretty important things to have in common. Right. And so to me, I think that that is what you can do, is that you can understand and appreciate that new alliances have to be born out of this. And I've been saying this to a lot of liberal, secular audiences in the past you know, six weeks or so in, in promoting the book, there, there has to be an understanding that if the threat is real, the threat of violent Christian nationalism, if it in fact is real, then finding allies in the evangelical world who don't want anything to do with that violent Christian nationalism is, is of the utmost importance and setting aside maybe some of the other disagreements for now. You know, recognizing that uh, that there's a bigger picture here, uh, that it's just it's
1: something that I can't stress enough. That is really helpful. And I think it's I think it's absolutely true. And you see you see some really powerful examples of that. You know, I think probably the most visible is David French and, and, and some of the other folks who really are are. You know, articulating a, a dismay uh, around what's happening. The question is: is to what de- to what degree are there institutional uh, organizations within the kind of broader evangelical churches you understand it who are speaking up in a way that can be uh, can function as an entry point into an alliance? This is like <laughs> I'm now getting into my like my role as an organizer. I'm just curious. Like, have you seen like? institutional organizations within the evangelical church who you feel like would be open. And I, I, I want to underscore before you answer, underscore something really important that you said. It's like, I think it gets to the question of like, what are we willing to do to preserve our democracy in this moment? What are we willing to do to preserve the kind of fabric of our society? Even when we have issues that we disagree on? what are the, what are ways that we can make sure that we are going to move forward with a uh, with a common body politic, uh, in a moment where it feels very possible that we could, uh, we could really have a, a tearing of our, uh, our the tapestry of our nation.
0: So th- there are some institutional responses, some organizational responses. Um, some of them are more visible than others. I-, I think, and that's in part by design, because what what the past few years have shown us is. That um, there, you know, a lot of these people are really scarred, and they are trying to figure out, okay, how can we, how can we walk alongside people? How can we b- build up these churches? How can we support these pastors without putting a target on their back? Right, because they think that we're a bunch of, you know, again, commie, socialist, Marxists, whatever, right? What woke uh, Christians? So it's interesting. You do see um, uh, some of these folks who are forming public facing efforts, which I write about a little bit in the book, but then even more so, you see a lot of behind the scenes kind of networking and collaborating and uh, kind of sharing of best practices. Uh, you're you're even seeing that locally, informally at, at the grassroots level. Uh, I've talked with pastors just in the last few months who for the first time are really because you you know how this works, right? You know the clergy has this kind of weird, you know, rivalry complex. Oftentimes, where you know you're friendly with the other pastors in town, but you're not necessarily like trading secrets with them, right? Because you know that's you know you've got your own congregation. Um, but for and for the first time, it feels like uh, you're hearing now about a lot of crossover, a lot of a lot of pe- a lot of these guys leaning on each other and 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 workshopping together. So I do sense that it's happening organically now in ways that we hadn't seen before, but it is also happening institutionally. And I think this election year is going to really be a proving ground to see how effective
1: some of some of those efforts are. Mm. How has this been received within your own tradition? This book, I can only imagine if people are have the gall to confront you at your father's funeral, like what, what kind of pushback are you getting on this book from those who you would might view as your your home home tradition
0: well listen not everybody likes it and that's fine um I've actually been pretty encouraged and maybe this is just me choosing to be optimistic uh I don't know that it is maybe it is but I've actually been really encouraged at some of the feedback I've gotten from people at my childhood church, people who um, I know think differently than I do about some of these things, but who are uh, really receptive to the message and and who are, you know, I think uh, allowing it to challenge them a little bit. And uh, that's all I can ask for. Uh, look, I, I have definitely received some, some ugly feedback, but that's to be expected. I think the thing that's been most surprising to me is that the scale of feedback i've gotten not just from my like individual home church but like my, from my tradition from a lot of conservative evangelical folks who have reached out and who have said yeah this is a problem and we we need to we need to deal with it and it's about time that more of us were willing to speak honestly about it that has been the over that has been the overwhelming feedback that i've gotten and that's been really surprising and really encouraging so um, I, I think that I think that the, the, the Lord is working in a lot of hearts here and and um, you know it might not be a quick process of, of
1: healing but I do think that the process is underway. Wow um, last question we ask everybody who comes on the show um, what gives you hope right now given all that you've written about Tim Alberta and uh, this book, and the world you're in, what gives you hope?
0: What gives me hope is that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is who he says he is. I, there, there's just, uh, you know, maybe that's the most pat standard answer I could give on a program like this, but it's just the truth. And, you know, uh, he told us that in this world we would have troubles, but to take heart that because he, he overcame the world. And, uh, I choose to believe that. And, um, And i believe it to my core and i know he also told us that you know that uh that this wasn't going to be easy and that it wasn't supposed to be easy and i think that we in the american experience have always had it pretty easy and we don't necessarily know how to deal with it when it gets hard but you know peter had it pretty hard paul had it pretty hard The, the the first century church had it pretty hard the church throughout much of history has had it pretty hard. And in fact, the church today in parts of the Middle East and Africa and Asia have it pretty hard. So um, I just, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself uh, or or sorry for our situation here. Uh, I'm going to try and do something about it. But ultimately, even if it doesn't get better, and even if it gets a heck of a lot worse, you know, Jesus is on the throne. and And so I feel pretty good about that.
1: Tim Alberta is a staff writer for The Atlantic and the best-selling author, The Kingdom, The Power, and The Glory, American Evangelicals in an Age of Extremism. His previous book is titled American Carnage on the Frontlines of the Republican Civil War and the Rise of President Trump. Tim, really great to have you on with us today on The State of Belief. Hey, Paul.
0: It was my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. And, uh, And God, Godspeed. God bless with all of your efforts.
1: Please be sure to subscribe to The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We need your help to keep making The State of Belief become a partner in this crucial work with a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And share what you're getting out of the show with the people in your networks. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going on Facebook and Instagram. And our handle is at State of Belief. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. The State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on the state of belief where religion and democracy meet.